Section 19 of On Christian Doctrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Craig Uselman, DeForest, Wisconsin. On Christian Doctrine by Augustine of Hippo. Translated by J. F. Shaw. Section 19, Book 4, Chapters 8 through 12. Chapter 8. The obscurity of the sacred writers, though compatible with eloquence, not to be imitated by Christian teachers. But although I take some examples of eloquence from those writings of theirs which there is no difficulty in understanding, we are not by any means to suppose that it is our duty to imitate them in those passages where, with a view to exercise and train the minds of their readers, and to break in upon the satiety and stimulate the zeal of those who are willing to learn, and with a view also to throw a veil over the minds of the godless, either that they may be converted to piety or shut out from a knowledge of the mysteries, from one or other of these reasons they have expressed themselves with a useful and wholesome obscurity. They have indeed expressed themselves in such a way that those who in after ages understood and explained them aright have in the church of God obtained an esteem, not indeed equal to that with which they are themselves regarded, but coming next to it. The expositors of these writers, then, ought not to express themselves in the same way, as if putting forward their expositions as of the same authority, but they ought, in all their deliverances, to make it their first and chief aim to be understood, using as far as possible such clearness of speech that either he will be very dull who does not understand them, or that if what they say should not be very easily or quickly understood, the reason will lie not in their manner of expression, but in the difficulty and subtlety of the matter they are trying to explain. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 How and with whom difficult passages are to be discussed For there are some passages which are not understood in their proper force, or are understood with great difficulty, at whatever length, however clearly, or with whatever eloquence the speaker may expound them, and these should never be brought before the people at all or only on rare occasions when there is some urgent reason. In books, however, which are written in such a style that, if understood, they, so to speak, draw their own readers, and, if not understood, give no trouble to those who do not care to read them. And in private conversations we must not shrink from the duty of bringing the truth which we ourselves have reached within the comprehension of others, however difficult it may be to understand it, and whatever labor in the way of argument it may cost us. Only two conditions are to be insisted upon, that our hearer or companion should have an earnest desire to learn the truth, and should have capacity of mind to receive it in whatever form it may be communicated, the teacher not being so anxious about the eloquence as about the clearness of his teaching. End of chapter 9. Chapter 10. The Necessity for Perspicuity of Style. Now a strong desire for clearness sometimes leads to neglect of the more polished forms of speech and indifference about what sounds well compared with what clearly expresses and conveys the meaning intended. Whence a certain author, when dealing with speech of this kind, says that there is in it a kind of careful negligence. Yet, while taking away ornament, it does not bring in vulgarity of speech, though good teachers have, or ought to have, so great an anxiety about teaching that they will employ a word which cannot be made pure Latin without becoming obscure or ambiguous, but which, when used according to the vulgar idiom, is neither ambiguous nor obscure, not in the way the learned, but rather in the way the unlearned, employ it. 
For if our translators did not shrink from saying, Non congregabo conventicula eorum de sanguinibus, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, because they felt that it was important for the sense to put a word here in the plural, which in Latin is only used in the singular, why should a teacher of godliness who is addressing an unlearned audience shrink from using awesome instead of os if he feared that the latter might not be taken as the singular of osa but as the singular of aura, seeing that African ears have no quick perception of the shortness or length of vowels? And what advantage is there in purity of speech which does not lead to understanding in the hearer, seeing that there is no use at all in speaking if they do not understand us for whose sake we speak? He, therefore, who teaches will avoid all words that do not teach, and if instead of them he can find words which are at once pure and intelligible, he will take these by preference. If, however, he cannot, either because there are no such words, or because they do not at the time occur to him, he will use words that are not quite pure, if only the substance of his thought be conveyed and apprehended in its integrity." And this must be insisted on as necessary to our being understood, not only in conversations, whether with one person or with several, but much more in the case of a speech delivered in public. For in conversation anyone has the power of asking a question. But when all are silent that one may be heard, and all faces are turned attentively upon him, it is neither customary nor decorous for a person to ask a question about what he does not understand. And on this account the speaker ought to be especially careful to give assistance to those who cannot ask for it. Now a crowd anxious for instruction generally shows by its movements if it understands what is said. And until some indication of this sort be given, the subject discussed ought to be turned over and over, and put in every shape and form and variety of expression, a thing which cannot be done by men who are repeating words prepared beforehand and committed to memory. As soon, however, as the speaker has ascertained that what he says is understood, he ought either to bring his address to a close, or pass on to another point. For if a man gives pleasure when he throws light upon points on which people wish for instruction, he becomes wearisome when he dwells at length upon things that are already well known, especially when men's expectation was fixed on having the difficulties of the passage removed. For even things that are very well known are told for the sake of the pleasure they give, if the attention be directed not to the things themselves, but to the way in which they are told. Nay, even when the style itself is already well known, if it be pleasing to the hearers, it is almost a matter of indifference whether he who speaks be a speaker or a reader. For things that are gracefully written are often not only read with delight by those who are making their first acquaintance with them, but re-read with delight by those who have already made acquaintance with them, and have not yet forgotten them. Nay, both of these classes will derive pleasure even from hearing another man repeat them. And if a man has forgotten anything, when he is reminded of it, he is taught. But I am not now treating of the mode of giving pleasure. I am speaking of the mode in which men who desire to learn ought to be taught. And the best mode is that which secures that he who hears shall hear the truth, and that what he hears he shall understand. And when this point has been reached, no further labor need be spent on the truth itself as if it required further explanation. But perhaps some trouble may be taken to enforce it, so as to bring it home to the heart. If it appear right to do this, it ought to be done so moderately as not to lead to weariness and impatience. End of chapter 10. Chapter 11. The Christian teacher must speak clearly, but not inelegantly. 
For teaching, of course, true eloquence consists not in making people like what they disliked, nor in making them do what they shrank from, but in making clear what was obscure. Yet, if this be done without grace of style, the benefit does not extend beyond the few eager students who are anxious to know whatever is to be learned, however rude and unpolished the form in which it is put, and who, when they have succeeded in their object, find the plain truth pleasant food enough. And it is one of the distinctive features of good intellects, not to love words, but the truth in words. For of what service is a golden key if it cannot open what we want it to open? Or what objection is there to a wooden one if it can, seeing that to open what is shut is all we want? But as there is a certain analogy between learning and eating, the very food without which it is impossible to live must be flavored to meet the tastes of the majority. End of chapter 11. Chapter 12. The aim of the orator, according to Cicero, is to teach, to delight, and to move. Of these, teaching is the most essential. Accordingly, a great orator has truly said, an eloquent man must speak so as to teach, to delight, and to persuade. Then he adds, to teach is a necessity, to delight is a beauty, to persuade is a triumph. Now of these three, the one first mentioned, the teaching, which is a matter of necessity, depends on what we say, the other two on the way we say it. He then who speaks with the purpose of teaching should not suppose that he has said what he has to say as long as he is not understood. For although what he has said be intelligible to himself, it is not said at all to the man who does not understand it. If, however, it is understood, he has said his say, whatever may have been his manner of saying it. But if he wishes to delight or to persuade his hearer as well, he will not accomplish that end by putting his thought in any shape no matter what, but for that purpose the style of speaking is a matter of importance. And as the hearer must be pleased in order to secure his attention, so he must be persuaded in order to move him to action. And as he is pleased if you speak with sweetness and elegance, so he is persuaded if he be drawn by your promises and awed by your threats, if he reject what you condemn and embrace what you commend, if he grieve when you heap up objects for grief, and rejoice when you point out an object for joy, if he pity those whom you present to him as objects of pity, and shrink from those whom you set before him as men to be feared and shunned. I need not go over all the other things that can be done by powerful eloquence to move the minds of the hearers, not telling them what they ought to do, but urging them to do what they already know ought to be done. If, however, they do not yet know this, they must, of course, be instructed before they can be moved, and perhaps the mere knowledge of their duty will have such an effect that there will be no need to move them with greater strength of eloquence. Yet when this is needful, it ought to be done, and it is needful when people, knowing what they ought to do, do it not. Therefore to teach is a necessity. For what men know, it is in their own hands either to do or not to do. But who would say that it is their duty to do what they do not know? On the same principle, to persuade is not a necessity, for it is not always called for, as, for example, when the hearer yields his assent to one who simply teaches or gives pleasure. For this reason, also to persuade is a triumph, because it is possible that a man may be taught and delighted, and yet not give his consent. And what will be the use of gaining the first two ends if we fail in the third? Neither is it a necessity to give pleasure, for when, in the course of an address, the truth is clearly pointed out, and this is the true function of teaching, it is not the fact, nor is it the intention, that the style of speech should make the truth pleasing, or that the style should of itself give pleasure, 
but the truth itself when exhibited in its naked simplicity gives pleasure because it is the truth and hence even falsities are frequently a source of pleasure when they are brought to light and exposed it is not of course their falsity that gives pleasure but as it is true that they are false the speech which shows this to be true gives pleasure end of chapter 12 end of section 19 recording by craig uselman deforest wisconsin